Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. All right, and welcome to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, of course, if you're a regular listener, you will know me. My name is Eric Wright. I'm at Disco Posse on Twitter. I'm also Disco Posse in the Green Circle community, where you'll find the show notes and, and other information about the GC On Demand. I'm very happy to talk about a very interesting subject. It's something that I discovered and started to dig a little bit more into, uh, and I think this is an important direction that, that all of us as technologists need to start looking. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about unikernels, and with that, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go this one alone, uh, so I've actually got Ian Iberg here with me. Uh, Ian, if you want to introduce yourself to the audience, then we're going to dig in about unikernels and and the stuff that you've been doing with with them and uh you know why this is an important area that people maybe just don't don't realize just yet how important it's going to be sure sure so uh my name is ian iberg and uh, i'm the ceo uh over at defer panic um we are uh we we were one of the first people to uh boot a go unikernel uh last year and then um earlier this year our focus has mainly been uh doing anything we can to make sure the ecosystem is a success and so that that implies building out a lot of tooling and infrastructure uh for for the ecosystem and, and that's interesting that because unikernels are sort of uh, uh, you know, untouched powder, as as we we say in the ski and snowboard land, right? This is an area where there's not as much development that's been going on, and especially around standardization. And it's funny if you look back at the papers, like if you go to unikernel.org and you look at like the, there's papers going back to early 2000s. Uh, so this is not something new. It's just that it's gotten a lot more focused lately. So. Yeah, Ian, how did you start getting involved with, with work on the unikernel side, and, and why did you think that it was important to kind of go down the road with this? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a very interesting point that you made about it not being new. A lot of people think unikernels in general are, you know, have just kind of sprung up in the past year or two. Um, however, the the design requirements of such a system have been around for a long time. Um, if you look at the Mars Lander, for instance, uh, it, it's using a real-time operating system uh, developed by a company here uh, in Alameda, um, and that resembles a lot like a unikernel because it has a single process, single address-based system, um, and those are very core unikernel features. I think what's new today and what people are starting to kind of build build the hype machine for is uh, is the fact that we now have the ability to run everyday web services as uni as unikernels, and the tooling is just getting better and better by the day. And so it's it, you know to us it's an eventuality that uh, most uh, cloud infrastructure is going to be unikernel based in the coming years. 
And I guess that's a great place to level set everybody, you know, for folks that are brand new to it. If you were to give your elevator pitch, what is a unikernel and what problem does it solve? Sure. So at the very basic um, kind of high level overview, a unikernel is simply an application that can run without your traditional operating system. Uh, so, so without Windows, without OS X, without in most server environments, it'd be Linux. Um, and so there's lots of advantages to being able to do this. And what's interesting was if we go back to the 90s, this was not really something that was too useful because we didn't have widespread virtualization. But VMware came out in the early OOs. Pretty much every CIO pays VMware now. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, five years later, we had a small company from Seattle called Amazon unleash uh, infrastructure as a service to the world. And that just completely changed how developers interact with servers. And so those, those were the first two waves of uh, virtualization. And union kernels kind of represent this third wave, if you will, because it, it asked the questions of, you know, now that we have widespread virtualization everywhere, what can we really do? You know, do we really need an operating system that's over 40 years old, um, built during a time and then when the PDP-7 and the PDP-11, those computers, when they came out, cost half a million dollars. It had to be multiple user. It had to be multiple process. But today, developers go out of their way to isolate systems from each other, and they honestly don't want any users. And uh, So it's it, unikernels represent what cloud infrastructure should be. And it's interesting that the best way to look forward is to look back and, and figure out what it is that we were trying to do. And like you said, it's this is not new. It's It's been realized now, you know, that in the sense of as an ecosystem, it's growing and it has very specific use cases. And it, whatever the, the chicken egg story is that obviously virtualization and cloud has prepared the opportunity for this. But. Did, did this type of development methodology and this deployment methodology create the need for virtualization in cloud? You know, it's everything old is new again. And, you know, the same way that you can walk around Williamsburg and see a lot of pork pie hats, it used to just be the only kind of hat you could get back in the day. <laughs> so now it's just cool right. to, to do it. You know, are unikernels, you know, coming back into style Whereas they'd been run in, you know, in specific systems before, and now that they can be much more general use. Do you do you see spots like where would we have seen yeah. kernels in real life, maybe you know, ten plus years ago, Ian? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, so a lot of the unikernel implementations have kind of spun out of uh, embedded systems. Um, uh, which you know we now kind of call IoT, <laughs> yeah, sure. and uh, and also uh, academia, um, and, and and so when you look at how you deploy these things and how you uh, test them and how you work with them, it looks an awful lot like how how we deal with embedded systems. Um, and what's really unique from a cloud perspective is we get all the advantages that working with those systems. Uh, entails. Um, in general, things like security. Uh, I, I have a security background. Um, you know, I, I was most recently over at App Authority, which was a mobile enterprise security company. Um, and 
you know, so I, I, I know exactly how hackers think and I know exactly how they work. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, unikernels represent a seismic shift in terms of um, preventing intrusions into your systems. And it's not even for what you might read in the press about the attack surface size. It's, it's more things like being able to fork a shell, for instance, just simply you can't do it. Um, that's right. And, we had yeah, this so idea of, of, you know, where we, like you said, the, the reduction of attack surface, that's a great marketing term, but w what does it mean yep. is what's important, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I actually have demo videos up on YouTube where we're on Google Cloud and I've installed WordPress and I'm like, oh, boom. I've, I've just rooted this Google Cloud instance through WordPress because WordPress is notorious for its security. <laughs> and uh, and then I show the same thing uh, running as a unikernel and it simply just doesn't work because the, uh, the attack methodologies, um, the tools are just not present. And, and you would be surprised how, uh, how much prevention this actually uh, you know, incurs. So, well, especially when we talk about the the IoT, you know, which uh, oh, it just it makes me weep a little inside every time I have to say that because it's such a broad generalization. But the idea that you know, small form factor embedded systems are going to be everywhere, and they're going to be at yes. a scale that's untenable to manage a full operating system environment. It's just there's just no functional way we can do that and we even when we talk about scale i'm also I, I always temper when i say at scale because everyone's idea of scale is different there's no reason why you couldn't embrace a unikernel approach to certain systems in a five host environment right or it doesn't need to be 50,000 instances running to make it valuable to look at a unikernel as an approach you know what what kind of what kind of implementations are you seeing, Ian, at the small scale where unikernels sure. are, are, are setting their feet? Sure. You know, I mean, at the at the most smallest size, uh, you have developers that are just wanting to spin up, you know, their web service, and that might be one VM. Um, and even if it's a T2 micro on Amazon, that's too much for them. And, uh, you know, it's it's also one of the things where, Amazon and Google Cloud and Azure, they're all built on this premise of you're going to be using the monolithic operating system. And so uh, we, we saw kind of earlier on that they just were not great fits for uh, unikernels in general. But, uh, you, you know, so, so we're seeing that. But in terms of, like, actual real-world production usage today, uh, you have many companies investing uh, in looking at unikernels. Uh, I, I know I'm not supposed to mention dates, but last night <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were at a unikernels meetup and um, we had Cisco there, we had Ericsson there, we had SRI there. Um, I know IBM has been looking at stuff. I know uh, Dell EMC people have. Um, it, it, there's in, in EC, um, there's quite a few companies out there that are not startups at all that are uh, investing time and energy into uh, looking at unikernels and specifically network virtualization is is kind of one of the uh, the bigger areas right now. Well, if you think about what it 
you know, and I, I kind of model what it is, is after what we were trying to re trying to solve with the ASIC, you know, it was a specialized hardware that had a specific set of instructions that solved a specific problem with a reduced amount of overhead. And except the ASIC created a world of hell that we're trying to undo right now by using x86 architectures and, and moving up to NFV to solve the problem mm. of the what's the use case being solved and making it generally available without having to tie into an ASIC because ASICs are not expensive and whatever. So unikernels solve two problems. They deliver the ASIC type of approach and they solve it on an abstracted underlayer, so you don't you don't have to care where it runs, how it runs, and like you said, the I think the tooling is the interesting area what we're looking at right now because one is where do you run it, and the second thing is how do you continually manage it on an ongoing basis, especially when we start to see that because everything like virtualization, you're like, oh, we'll try it out for one system. Next thing you know, you're running like 50 virtual machines on a single hardware server. And people are like, wow, this is a terrible idea. Like the performance is awful. So as unikernels come into better adoption, you know, how do we solve the initial tooling problem, Ian? And, and where do you see the challenges we're going to face with, you know, ongoing management of a unikernel environment? Sure. So, so re real quick, um, just to kind of subdivide unikernels because it's such a um, the applications are endless. I've, I I kind of subdivide them into three categories. Uh, one, you have the web services stuff, which is what we kind of look at. And so, this is just like software that you might stick in a data center, or or it might be you know software that's SaaS based. Uh, then you have your IoT, which we kind of mentioned. Um, uh, where a lot of work is being done uh, simply because of the size and all security and stuff like that. And then you have the network virtualization uh, kind of realm. And so all three of these categories are going to have different deployment models and they're going to have different um, uh, infrastructure models and so forth. But speaking from the web services side, which uh, our interest kind of lies, um, at the end of the day, we cross-compile the application down into a very small, lightweight virtual machine. So it's you get to reuse all your VMware, your Zen, or Hyper-V, or whatever hypervisory organization is using. Um, you get to reuse all this virtualization technology that has been built over the past 15 years, which is great um, when you compare it to something like containers. Yeah, and uh, go ahead. So yeah, that's it, and it's and that's the thing. Like we see the container approach, and and I love that this kind of lands in the middle of like it could embrace containers as a as a launch methodology, but yet, like I said, it's just closer to the application, and 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 I think that's where the focus that people get stuck on. A lot of the operations focused people yeah. still are like thinking ground up. They're always thinking infrastructure virtualization building resiliency there and like, no, 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 <laughs> let's think application down and then we'll stitch in between whatever it takes to solve that application problem. And that's sort of like, that's why I, I love that we're seeing this beautiful sort of spot in the middle being hit by what a unikernel server can, can deliver. Yeah. And, and just to kind of, you know, I, I kept on saying virtual machine and some people are probably thinking, oh, so it's like a five gig image or whatever. Just to give the audience uh, a view of the size, 
uh, we have spun up, and, and many others have spun up unikernels that are sometimes smaller. These, these are virtual machines, by the way, uh, uh, that are smaller than some of the images on our website. <laughs> so, so some of these unikernels are kilobyte size, if, if you want to be that small. Um, I think the average unikernel running on our stuff right now and, and once again, these are like Ruby applications, PHP applications, Java applications. It, it, it's around 20 meg, um, and that includes everything. That's, that's the application, that's the bits that it needs to talk to the network, talk to the disk, all that stuff. About 20 meg is, is the average. So these are pretty small, and uh, you can stuff thousands of them on one server. Uh, we found that you know, CPU isn't really the limiting factor. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, RAM is RAM is usually you know the limiting factor, and it's just whatever your application actually needs is is what you would give it. But we we've totally ran thousands of these um, on commodity servers. What's interesting is if you look at the sizing, and I I love how we've we've embraced this idea of of thinness so well. But we forget where we came from sometimes. So people, I, I saw, you know, Kelsey Hightower did a great uh, sample where he talked about building an iPixie server in Go and then like compile it for cross-platform because Go was like super easy to do. And this example, it created a seven and a half meg, you know, iPixie server that runs as a service. It was like, you know, it's a limited amount of code, just a handful of files and that's it. A fully featured iPixie server to be able to support CoreOS. And it was really cool. And he says the, the people came back and they're like, wow, like, why is it seven and a half megs for just this one little service? And you started to think like, hey, you know, like what the hell size of your server environment now? Like seven and a half megs is okay. We have lots of room on the server. Right. When you think about the monoliths and the monsters that we're, we're living with today, and look, so I think seven and a half megs or yeah, so megs is super easy. That's that's actually uh, that's a really interesting point that I think it's overlooked quite a bit, and so we, we could dive into that. Um, it, you know, there's lots of talks about immutable infrastructure, microservices. Um, we'll throw an agile just for fun. Uh, it, you know, when people talk about these things and you really kind of embrace the uh, advantages that these methodologies give you. Uh, you know, you really do want um, very small artifacts. If, if I'm a developer and I want to push code 20 times a day, which we do, um, I don't want to be pushing up a 5 gig or a 1 gig image all the time. Um, I, you know, I, I want my code to run through its tests and then I want it to go out to production, I want it completely automated, all this sort of stuff. And so, so unikernels really embrace this, and it's it's this trend that's been kind of going on forever. And and I think you know it's actually to Docker's credit, I think um, they've really kind of pushed this idea amongst the developer uh, crowd. And uh, w without it, I think it would be kind of hard to kind of push the unikernel uh, uh, religion. You know. So. Yeah, it's it's good that we've. It's all come together, I think, and the timing is is ideal. And so we can talk about timing and, and people that are solving tool. And let's talk about defer panic. You know, how did defer panic come about? And then what are the challenges you're trying to solve, you know, with the work that you guys are doing there? 
Sure. So, uh, so you mentioned Go. Um, Defer Panic, actually, the, the name comes from the Go programming language. Defer is uh, a keyword that says, uh, do this before the function executes. And Panic basically blows up the runtime. And so last year, we were heavily Go-focused uh, shop um, and did a lot of tooling and stuff uh, for the ecosystem there. Um, around November, we booted Go on a Go application on KVM as a unikernel, uh, the first ones to do that. And then, you know, between November and like January or somewhere around there, we were trying to figure out, okay, so it works, how do we take it to production? <laughs> so it was a series of um, roadblocks and, uh, I mean, just one after the other, you know, trying, and keep in mind, we're, you know, some pretty pretty technical engineers too, like it's, uh, so, so it's, uh, it, it was a series of challenges that we had to climb and, uh, it, you know, things that we found early on, it, I mentioned before, the public cloud wasn't a great fit. Uh, one of the things on that is uh, both Google Cloud and Amazon have a minimum of uh, one gigabyte volume size. You know, like, well, one gig, you know, like I'll use 10 gig, 20 gig, hell, I'll use a 60 gig disk. And that works if your uh, images are local. But if I have to transport that image up and down 20 times a day, like I have to do with the unikernel, it just it doesn't work. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that was, that was like one of the things that we found out almost immediately, um, that it just was not going to work very well on, on the public clouds uh, as they're built today. Who knows, maybe Google next year will provide better support. Um, and uh, so, so we started going through a lot of this stuff and we, we ran into many other challenges too. Um, testing, for instance, was kind of a challenge because it doesn't quite work the same way. Um, you know, in our case, uh, we heavily hacked the Go runtime and uh, at one point we had, we had a felling test that was inside the Go runtime. Um, and uh, so our test, what it did was to ensure that our changes were correct, we would compile the Go runtime, we would compile a uh, sample Go application, then we would boot, boot the Go application inside the hypervisor, then we would screen scrape the test results from, from that. Now all of that is just work that most CI systems would never ever do, because that's just, that's just so crazily com complex, and so there's, so much room here for new tools and new ways of doing these sorts of tasks. And I think once once we see more maturity, uh, you know, with deploying and testing and you know all those domains, um, we'll see we'll see more adoption too. I just love that we can bring back screen scraping because like we can make it cool again. Like that's that's so. It's funny that we we have to use some really odd methods to solve what should be basic. You know, you, you think these problems would be solved just easily, but we're we're always yeah. revisiting them in different ways. And so I, it's a good thing to humble ourselves as technologists in general that there's always going to be stuff that we're going to have to do. There's always going to be tooling and processes that we have to do. And we're not getting rid of them as we look at a unikernel or a container or a cloud or, or whatever it is. But we abstract them. We simplify them a bit more. We make them more simple to automate. 
but we've like we're evolving and i i never think of it as as something like that solves it and that's it it's done it's a continuous evolution i mean it's it's truthfully it's the theory of constraints in action every single day <laughs> so it's right. i love the the idea of what unikernels can do and i also widely you know accept that it no new thing will replace every old thing so on that Ian, like what does a unikernel easily replace and what do you see it with a little bit more work being able to replace sure. that people are doing great today? Question. Great question. Uh, so the easiest things, once again, in, in my viewpoint, <laughs> is, uh, you, you know, particularly web services that are coded uh, inside the language of choice. So if you're using PHP, if it's mostly PHP, uh, that's a good candidate. Or if you're using Ruby and most of your code is Ruby, that's a good candidate. Um, and it, you know, typically with these languages, uh, we can cross-compile them down with the push of a button. It, there's no make files, there's no linker flag weirdness. I mean, you just click the button. In fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, we threw in support for uh, um, uh, uh, continuous integration to where uh, you can push your code to GitHub, and then it automatically builds um, your your new uh, image. But um, so bad candidates. Um, so this is where it gets kind of tricky, right? If we look at Linux, which is the predominant operating system for uh, you know what we're basically replacing, um, and you look at how it's evolved over the years, uh, there's there's the concept of System Five programming, and that entails also sorts of things when it comes to multiple process systems, which unikernels simply aren't. <laughs> right. By design. You know, I mean, there's single process systems by design. And so if you look at something like Postgres, for instance, uh, that's not a great candidate for unikernels. Um, it, nobody's preventing you from turning it into a unikernel, but you're going to have to hack, and you're going to have to hack quite a lot. Um, the easy things to point out are that Postgres makes heavy usage of forking, which in most uh, unikernel systems, they're single process, so therefore forking is just not going to happen. Um, but you dive in deeper and you discover things like shared memory. Well, shared memory is there for multiple processes to share. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you dive deeper and you find, you know, Semaphore usage, once again, uh, multiple, multiple processes. Signals, multiple processes. There's, there's quite a few different things that you might find, especially in applications that were started in, say, the 90s, um, that uh, simply aren't, aren't going to be easy to convert. They're going to require lots and lots of hacking. Having said that, I think a lot of that programming style has um, fallen out of favor in the past, you know, five years to a decade. You don't quite find a lot of that um, anymore. Um, so that's that's a good thing. But yeah, there's there's a lot of legacy stuff out there that would be very hard to convert. Yeah, and it's I I always point back Alex Polvey, uh, who's the founder and CEO of CoreOS. He, well, I had him on the podcast and, and he talks a lot about like the foundation of what they're trying to do with CoreOS 
among many other things, is is to fill in the white space. That's what he calls it. It's like they continue to add areas and and pieces of the platform that fill in this white space of solving security, you know, orchestration. Uh, hypervisor, you know, handling, event handling, they'll move up the stack and whatnot. And I love that unikernels really do a great job of filling in a white space, you know, and you talked about it there, right? It's not a fix all, it's not going to remove the need for a lot of things. But if you're in a, if you're looking at, you know, a multi-tier application, why wouldn't you you know, use Unikernel as your front-end management. We can use your message queuing tier and then leave the back end on whatever database systems you want. But why wouldn't we thin up every piece we can? That was the whole whole idea of, of N-tiered systems is that then you decouple them and then you get this ability to have loosely coupled environments that aren't going to negatively affect each other when you choose something different on, on one area in the tier. So I love this idea of filling in the white space and this is where, as a as a pundit, you always want to be careful too, because everybody loves to say, "Well, this this is where everything's going." I think we joked about it at the OpenStack Summit. <laughs> Said, "Oh, you know, why are we bothering with containers and paths? We're totally moving right onto unikernels." And they say it jokingly, but like, well, no, we we should, you know, like we should look at where where unikernels would fit, as well as the other things. So, so Ian, as as new folks want to start looking at unikernels what's a good way for them to get started and where do you see opportunities for them to think in comparison to something because that's always good if you give a foundation like sure. if you're looking at this unikernel here's how it compares to virtualization or or platform as a service or, or whatnot sure sure so uh technically um if you're dealing with unikernels um you're going to have to deal with the hypervisor level. So I often get asked, you know, does Kubernetes work with this? And, uh, you know, there's definitely been some people that run unikernels under Docker, run unikernels under Kubernetes. But to me, um, it, 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 that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> uh, once again, Kubernetes is orchestrating at the operating system level. Uh, where if you're dealing with a VM, you need to orchestrate at the hypervisor level. Um, so there's there's just completely different um, layers of the stack that you're operating on. But in terms of uh, you know getting started, uh, one of our you know our mission is to kind of advance the community and you know push the community as far as we can go. So to that end, we're trying to make things as easy as possible. Uh, so you. We, we offer ways of uh, running unikernels through our website, uh, signing up for free and all that stuff. And with a click of a button, you can turn a Node app or a Ruby app or a PHP app or Go or Java or you know, pre pretty much any language. You click the button and um, you know, within a few minutes, with two minutes, you can boot your first unikernel. So that's one way. Another way, if you don't want to touch our site, is we also have uh, a local unikernel runner, which loosely wraps around uh, KVM, QMU, and so you can run them locally on on your Mac or you know whatever laptop you have, and that way you can kind of toy around in the ecosystem and um, start you know playing with them. Uh, it, you know, one of the things that I I always kind of mention to certain people is if you've ever seen the CD Insights graphic of the containerization ecosystem. You have like 
the volume companies, you got the security companies, you got the platform companies, you got you know all these different segments of the containerization ecosystem. Uh, the unikernel graphic of that will utterly dwarf the container one, simply <laughs> because there's so much more software that has to be you know dealt with. But it has a lot of the same you know problems. And uh, and and then on the flip side, it also has uh, some solutions too. You know, I, I mentioned at the end of the day, these are just VMs. So we already have a lot of the software out there to manage VMs. Like for instance, we can do live migration with Unikernels today, and the containerization people are still kind of, you know, just kind of screwing around with it. Um, so it's. There's things like that that are really interesting. Um, I think as a standard as well, that's the one area where people are probably going to look. At, you know, we, obviously we have we're seeing what's happening with the containerization side with the OCI, uh, Open Con yep. Container Initiative uh, was was really cool in what it was trying to attack, and then we saw some sluggishness on getting the first spec out because there was a feeling that. Well, what's the right place to begin? There's a lot to take on, and admittedly, it's a huge, huge area that was well underway. You know, Docker kind of forced everybody's hand to innovate and 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 deal with it, just the same way that every government is trying to catch up with Uber. The rest of the world on tech standardization was fighting with the rapid pace of growth that Docker was achieving, both technically and hopefully, you know, as a business as well. So. Do you see that there's a need, or or what do you see is coming for like standardization on on unikernels and you know like? Uh, yeah, so we're uh, <laughs> I think we're a long ways away from standardization on unikernels. Uh, I can count you know more than I mean there's so so the thing is is uh, once again unikernels themselves are not necessarily new. Uh, my most kind of the, the one I like the most is called the Rump Kernel Project. And uh, so, so this is an interesting project. It was started around 2007, which is also the year that the iPhone came out, by the way. Wow. Uh, so that, that kind of gives you a time frame of how old that project actually truly is. And, um, you know, so, so, so you have from, and then you have another project like OSV, um, and that's from, I think, I think Gore and them started working on it in like 2011, 2012. Um, is is when they started looking at it, um, and just those two implementations right there, which to me are the the most um, advanced solutions out there. Uh, you know, those are completely different implementations, like utterly night and day, completely different. Um, and so, I think it I think it would be rather hard to make a standard, not just simply because the implementations are so radically different. But also because the use cases are so radically different. If I'm if I'm making a NFB unikernel uh, because I don't want to pay Cisco money anymore, um, you know that is going to look and act and feel completely different from a web service unikernel. And it, it, just to kind of paint the picture a little bit better, there's a unikernel out there called ClickOS. And they've written multiple papers on the subject, but some of the bragging rights that they have is, is that they boot their VMs in 10 milliseconds. They migrate them in 20 milliseconds. Uh, and they've, they've ran tens of thousands of them on commodity servers. So that type of unit 
kernel is completely different from the Unix kernels that we run, where you might have a database as a Unix kernel, you might have a web app as a Unix kernel, um, maybe you have a service layer, you know. And, and so I don't think you can come out with a standard that encompasses all of that together. Uh, I, I do think that the tooling will dramatically change, and, and there's definitely efforts underway right now to shore up some of the, the tooling. Um, because, you know, compiling these and making sure that your libraries are linked in um, effectively, it's definitely not something that's super easy <laughs> outside of a couple uh, tools right now. Um, so that I can definitely see some more standardization come out from. It's like the when we had this idea of, you know, everybody got Lambda hot, you know, it's all about serverless and it's still, that's always, that's still going on, obviously, but it was funny. Oh, yeah, Everybody I know, yeah, they, they yeah. ran for it and they're like, oh, I'm just going to run this as a Lambda, you know, uh, function. Like, go for it. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> You'd see them three days later. And I'm like, no, I need, I also need my API. And then like, now you're building the API. Like, oh, like there was all this tooling involved to get to the very simple, easy deployment. You know, like that's, it's not easy when you actually wrap all the stuff around it. <laughs> yeah, no, so that's that's actually a good point. Um, you, you had reminded me to talk about this earlier and I forgot, but uh, yeah, so serverless is something that looks and acts a lot like a unikernel uh, to some degree, at least on the surface. You know, you have these concepts of like, well, you can just infinitely scale it and you know, you don't really have to touch ops which is kind of proponent of unikernelism. You know, I, once again at the meetup last night, some guy was had a slide that basically said we can finally kill DevOps. Which, <laughs> if you've ever worked in ops, like I have, um, you're actually in favor of. Now, this does scare the entire DevOps industry. I, I think if you look at some of the kind of um, articles that are saying unikernels are bad, uh, that the ops industry is definitely a little bit afraid of this because it does remove a lot of the work. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of serverless, um, you can totally implement uh, a serverless implementation as unikernels, and they're actually a great fit for that. And I would actually see um, other people uh, starting to do that, you know, uh, in the next year or so as as that kind of paradigm starts to grow and it, it is an interesting trend to look at because it, so I'll give you an example when Heroku came back out in uh, 08 I think uh, when they came out I was like who who in their right mind would use this right, <laughs> right. Um, you, you can't log in you don't have a shell you, you know there's like no insight it's a kind of a black box and I think because of Heroku's success, you can really point at this trend that has been going on for quite some time. And it's the trend that, you know, developers are moving further and further and further away from the servers and managing them. And, you know, there's a whole cohort of developers that I think are actually larger, um, you know, in, in relation to the people who do deal with servers. Um, and, and that cohort is growing. And I think Unikernels and, and the serverless people you know, are in a great, um, great time because of that. I think it's uh, it's definitely good. We should accept all comers because if you if you try and try and drag our heels on on stopping technology from land, it's going to go outside, and and that's really what's important. So it's 
for all the folks that are that are listening in, definitely there's lots of good places to go, as you mentioned. You know, uh, so Ian works with the Defer Panic. So if you go to deferpanic.com or a lot of your stuff refers to .net. What's the the right way to approach that one, Ian? Oh yeah, so that's a little bit of a story, but you know, we weren't um, fully uh, on the whole unikernel bandwagon for a while. I mean, it, you know, we were originally kind of a ghost services company. Um, and so deferpanic.com for the longest time was still kind of sporting those, uh, those colors, if you will. Uh, but the, the .NET was what we had been building out, you know, to host the infrastructure. As I, as I mentioned, Google and Amazon just weren't choices. Yeah. And then eventually when, when we shifted and we got rid of the other customers from, uh, from the old service, we, uh, we went ahead and changed it. So now deferpanic.com and .NET are... Um, you know, both the same uh, place now. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I recommend folks go take a look. Uh, you've got a great sample video of, of how quick and easy it is to spin up a unit kernel. I know you offer opportunities for folks to sign up. They can run, you know, I think it's like one free instance, you know, that they can have active. Uh, so definitely, you know, I would love to see some folks research that, take a look at it, let us know, drop us a line. You know, you can tweet me, of course. Uh, and then, Ian, how do folks get a hold of you online if they want to find out more about about Defer Panic and about Unikernels in general? Yeah, I mean, if you're online, you can always uh, email me, Ian, I-A-N, at deferpanic.com. Uh, or uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you're in the Bay Area, you can just come to one of our meetups or, uh, you know, we'll grab coffee or whatever. Um, but, yeah. That's awesome. I love uh, I love what you're doing. I love filling in the white space with with many styles of implementations, and and I wish you good luck with Defer Panic and with you and the team. And and we'd love to see, uh, you know, maybe we'll do a follow up in in a couple of months as as we kind of get through the next round of people figuring it out. And 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 I'd love to to do a little bit more and and see how things are going. You know, both in the industry and and with you at the company as well. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Ian. And uh, again, for folks who want to reach out, of course, you can you can find us, uh, uh, go to gcondemand.io. And uh, we look forward to hearing much more about every layer of the stack, uh, you know, from from the physical uh, down all the way up to the top where uh, the unicorns live. Thanks very much, Ian. All right. Thanks, Eric. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.